I'm just going to read a passage purely because everyone's resettling, but it just helps reorientate us into uh, where we're where we're going and what a God who is alive and well and on the move um, has to say for all time. It's from Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labour for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Seek. Actively, persistently, ardently look for the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts, here goes my voice again, I'm not even sick. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Thank you, Sarah. Well, I want to break down really um, how renewal then moves. When people get to this point where they want to cross the Jordan River, where they want to consecrate themselves, is that you see, in a sense, if you can imagine two revival tracks and um, one track goes like this and, and... the other goes like that. That's just the most amazing visual metaphor. Thank you. I was up most of the night coming up with that. And um, I'm very... I actually wasn't going to continue writing. It was so bad. Um, So um, you've got sort of two... You've got like a... I'm going to call it a micro... Is that even better? Like, just feel the power. That's, That's coming now. Micro track of renewal, and then there's a macro track. So what, what I want to do now is really talk about the macro track of how this works through different systems. And, but there's also a micro track. And in studying renewals, which God's had me reading about renewals, first he had me reading, and how does God create renewal, or what I call turnaround leaders at certain moments? There's always someone who God uses. He's often unlikely who often says, me, really? Who often has got to take a step of courage? Who often looks around and realizes what the moment is? So I studied those kind of leaders. And then I studied, like, how does all the different real moments of history, what are the common moments and what are the common patterns? So there's the macro one I'm going to talk about in a second. But the micro one always begins with that sense of consecration. You'll always see there's this, you know, I'm no longer going to tolerate it. And there's an external to that. There's a no longer, am I going to tolerate what's going on in the world and in the church? And no, am I going to tolerate a low level of faith in myself? And what happens is the comparison goes from 
I'm no longer going to tolerate a faith when I compare myself to God's holiness and what I see in Scripture versus, actually, when I compare myself to most people following their faith, I'm actually okay. I'm half a meter ahead of everyone else. Instead of comparing horizontally, you begin to compare vertically. And God wants that moment because that means He can break in again. And then normally when you do that and you go, I'm not going to compare sideways. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but compared to those people. And you, compl- and you look upwards and it's God's standards versus the world's standards begins to take over. Is that that then leads you into repentance. I can't spell, by the way. Um, which leads into confession of not being able to spell. And there's this sense that I have to confess. It doesn't always have to be public. It doesn't mean you've got to get up and give some testimony about your deepest sins. But this is the clearing out. This is the clearing out for the Spirit to come. And consecration also means a setting apart. Holiness is a setting apart. And that setting apart is, okay, I'm not going to go by the standards of the culture. If you actually start holding on to holiness and do it in the right way, I'm not talking religiosity where you look down your nose at people because there's actually side ramps off here. The enemy at this point is like, okay, he will adapt to different techniques. So basically, the enemy's chief original strategy is just like, keep the Christians quiet. Shh, stay sleeping. Don't wake the baby so he creeps you know if you've ever been a parent with young kids and you're like oh no I really need to go to the toilet and there's that creaky floorboard how long can I hold on I am exhausted I finally peace but I need to go to the toilet and then you're like my friend described it my friend when I was about to have kids my friend rang me and talked to me about this and he goes okay you need to understand this is literally like war and you're like some soldier going through the jungle. You step on one twig, you're going to get shot. That's how, that's the stakes here, you know. Like, they get to, okay, it's okay. And then you're like, did I hear something? Oh, no. You know, and then there's your next four hours gone. So the enemy wants, is like that. The enemy's walking around your house. When a church is just like, yeah, it's okay, guys. He wants to fool you into it's being okay. Shh, we don't want that renewal energy. Shh. But then, oh, hang on, the baby's up. Then his, his strategy changes. And what he wants to do, this is where he gets into the sort of judo-like tactics. And one of the masters of strategy of our day is Vladimir Putin, who studied judo. Most of the people who run Russia were part of his judo club in St. Petersburg. And what he realizes is that you take an energy and you run with it. Vladimir Putin's strategy over America is to take what protest movements they are and make them more extreme on the left and right. And so what the enemy wants to do is he wants to take that like, oh man, I can't go by the world's standards anymore. I have to look to you, God. God, oh, what have I done? I've confessed, I've repented. And at that point, he's going to come in and he wants to trend that into spiritual pride. Actually, yeah. Why? They don't see it because they're idiots. And this is happening in our church, but it's not happening with them. Or it's happening with me, but it's not happening with my mates. And he wants to inflate at that moment. Or he wants you to trend into, wow, we've got this new truth and these other people don't get it. And I want to push that. And I've got this new truth. And he wants to either trend you into religiosity and fundamentalism or he wants to trend you into heresy. And so this setting apart must be accompanied by humility. 
humility to go, I, I'm, I don't deserve this. This renewal moment is happening because of an act of sovereign grace. I'm no better than anyone else. In fact, maybe God chose me because I'm not that good. And he wants to use a broken vessel. And actually, I come, I'm not coming out with some super moment. This has actually been through the people of God throughout history. And I just need to go back to those original wells. I need to go back to Scripture. I need to submit myself to that. I need to go on the leading of the Spirit. Just use me, God, however you use me, even if that's in a hidden way, even if that's just to pray. Melbourne had a revival in 1901 because an unknown group of people prayed for 30 years from the mid-19th century. What are their names? You don't know their names. Many of the great engineers and partners with God in renewal are nameless. And so humility must accompany a renewal moment. That's your guarantee to not trend into two of those extremes. And then humility turns into often, uh, there's accompanied with this, is this no longer tolerating, is a holy discontent. And that's the beginning point where some of you actually feel restless and frustrated. And some of you think that's about your life. It's actually about a holy discontent that God has placed there. And the enemy wants to take that holy discontent and turn it into passivity and hopelessness and nihilism. But actually, in reality, holy discontent is fuel for contention. Holy discontent is fuel for contention. What is contending? Contending is hunger. Okay, God, I'm praying. Move in my city. I'm actually going to get up half an hour early. I'm going to pray that you'll move in my church, move in my life. Hey, guys, I'm just going to let people know that in your small group, say, wherever, hey, I just, next Tuesday night, I just feel this thing at 11 o'clock. I want to pray. So if you want to come and cry out for God to move in this time, that's going to happen at my house. You don't have to come. This is when people all of a sudden feel the need to fast and not tell anyone. This is when people in worship go from like, hey, nice experience. And sometimes it is fine to relax in the presence of God. But this is when like, God, when I read those words, move again. When you read scripture, God, do this again. And that contending begins to build. And the thing with this as well is we can't control when God's going to move. One of the great debates in renewal literature is, can you make this happen? And one side says, there's nothing you can do. It's going to be an act of grace. The other side says, there's some things you can do to make this happen. I should think it's both. We can posture ourselves in alignment that if God wants to move. And sometimes this contending will go on for some time, even decades. And what happens is, I see this, the analogy I have is, this is like a fermenting grapes. The grapes are crushed, but for the wine to be wine and the grape juice to be turned into wine and the properties for it to mature, it has to ferment. So in our quick fix mentality, like, oh, cool, I'll just do that. And then by next Tuesday, we're going to have a renewal. Is that sometimes the wine is put in the bottle, but sometimes it's put in the cellar. But wine matures. Melbourne had a revival in 1901 where more people turned up to pray at the Royal Exhibition Buildings than were at the first meeting of federal parliament. Again, this is the untold story of what's happened in our city. And for 30 years, that passion grew. In the Hebrides, revival, the very top north of Scotland, people met in a house to just pray. When God moved in an awakening in the 19th century in America, it began when a handful of businessmen, four or five, started praying on Wall Street in their lunchtime. And it grew and it matured. God's going to teach us 
patience in this. God is going to teach us to trust Him in this. So there's this sense where contending then has to move into persistent prayer, persistent calling out to God. So it begins with no longer tolerating. It begins with repentance, then confession, setting apart, humility, contending, persistent prayer, and breaking up the soil. This is like this breaking up the soil. It's hard soil, which may have even been healthy, but because of it's been just neglected. When that water comes, it goes over it. When seeds put on it, it goes over it. And to, what you need to do at that time is you need to break it up and create a hunger. That's really what this almost whole process is, a breaking up of the soil before the plants can grow. Maybe turn to the person next to you and just have a little discussion. Where do you think you are on this? And again, if you're just here, that's fine. If you're just like, oh my goodness, I did not realize this was going on. I feel like I have to have to go from here and wonder whether I tolerate this anymore. That's fine as well. If you're at stage, you know, zero starting point, that's a great place to begin. Where are you in this process? What God's doing in you? And I'm just looking at this personally. To the person next to you, uh, have that discussion. Realize you could be sitting next to someone you don't know, but these are the little steps of courage we need to take to break up the soil at this time. Have a chat. So this is a process that happens at a micro level. And by micro, I mean in you. Um, But also, I want to just talk about the macro level. So we're going to go out wider, and we're going to see the interrelationship between these two things. But then what Terry's going to do in the afternoon is, is dig more into this. Dig more into what this looks like. Dig more into this if you feel like, man, yes, I feel that frustration and disillusionment and, and just, ah, I want more. I'm dissatisfied. God, what are you doing? So, we're just going to, the helicopter is going to head up into the sky. And what I want to talk about is a renewal system. And what you realize is that we as humans are actually social creatures. People have known that before Christ. Aristotle said, humans are social animals. And therefore, we live in an interrelated web of relationships and spaces particularly in the church. And I want to look at how this works in the church. We are individuals. We are a little community of one. Sometimes you have arguments and dissension and disagreements with yourself. Sometimes you have a little political battle with, should I do this? Shouldn't I do that? You change. Just as governments change in Australia, you have liberal labor, you change. You have different things happening within the little social space of just yourself maybe even right now. Then we have leaders who are people who have a broader span of influence than just themselves. There's what Dallas Willow called the range of your effective will. Some of you are struggling to just actually bring your own will in your own life under your own control. You find yourself doing what other people want you to do. You're in a room like this, like, what's everyone else doing? Is everyone getting a tea out there? Or should I go then? Have people come back in now? Others of you, like, you just don't care. You're just coming back and you're sitting down and what you don't realise is that actually probably other people are looking at you and other people know when you've actually, your will is being stepped on. You've got a stronger will, stronger influence. So you then have micro-communities throughout the history of the church. 
There have been smaller communities within the church. There's a different language we could use around this. This could be a group of friends getting together. This could be the small little gatherings of believers we see in the New Testament. This could be what John Wesley called the societies, which were these groups of Christians who came together within Methodism. This could be the little renewal cells that happened in the pietist church in Germany and Lutheranism after the Reformation. This could be small groups in our day. This could be mid-sized groups, mission groups, whatever your church has, these micro-communities. Then we have churches, which are fairly self-explanatory. These are the congregations. Then we have when something begins to happen and different churches and different micro-communities and different organizations get together because the Holy Spirit is doing something and they band together for a bigger purpose. And then the goal of that is influencing cultures. Now, notice here I didn't say culture. One of the great myths of the Western secularist myth is that we live in Western culture. Sometimes I sit here uh, in a meeting and, and you look out the window and you see different people walking up and down the street here. You'll see people who have multiple cultures. We live in a multicultural society, all with different worldviews. Yet so often we believe this myth that everyone else there thinks one thing, that somehow public opinion, if 73% of Australians believe this, therefore it's true. We live in a multiplicity of cultures. Even if you just took a a four-kilometre block around here. I remember I was on Twitter one morning and there's a feature where you can look at what people are saying closest to you. So you can actually read all the tweets and you can have like, I think it was like a two-kilometre radius, five-kilometre radius, ten-kilometre radius... So I'm like, fascinating, what are people within? I was, this is when my kids were really young and I was up one morning with them and letting Trudy have a sleep and I was sitting there and trying not to move. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, what are the people around me saying? This is a really good thing for me to know as a pastor in this area. What are my people saying? What are their opinions? And I'm thinking in my head before I did this, oh, they're going to have opinions on this, they're going to be this. And I'm thinking, I'm oh, Melbourne, you know, Melbourne's sort of edgy and, you know, progressive and this and secular and blah, blah. So I flip on the thing. Now, I couldn't understand what people were saying. You know why? Because the majority of tweets around me were in Indonesian. And I could pick that they were talking about one topic in Indonesian, the English Premier League. <laughs> and if you... Let's see this, you know, Indonesian, oh, okay, Wayne Rooney, okay, yeah. Um, and there were, there were some in Mandarin. Now, no one would walk around and go, oh, you're Melbourne, yeah, classic Indonesian culture. Um, but that was the dominant thing that was online presence. So this whole world that you would never enter online, and one of the things that online has done, because it puts us in silos, it's actually made us blind, and it's made the experts blind to actually what's going on. So we live in cultures... That's how God set us up. And they interrelate and they overlap and so on. So what tends to happen is when people talk about renewal in the church and there's all different programs for renewal is that we try and change these things in isolation. So there's the books, which are all about you. Here's the book. You can go to the Christian bookstore. Here's the book of how God is just going to change you. He's got the perfect plan for your life and how all the dreams you want. Here's how God's going to make it happen. The Christianized version of self-help which is really a Christianized veneer over that original dream we looked at of secular culture, that your kind of individual utopia is going to happen. Then we have all the leadership material. 
Then we have the stuff about how you can just, the answer for the church is just get into micro-communities. The problem is when we get too big, just get into micro-communities, missional communities, just do that. That's going to solve everything. Then you've got the other material, which is like, here's how you do church better. Here's how you do worship better. Here's how you organize people. Here's how you get the right building. Here's how you have the right graphics. Then we've got the material which says, no, it's actually not about churches. It's actually about movements. So we need to become movemental. And then you've got other stuff, which is actually, no, actually, we need to get out into the culture and change culture. So here's how you get into your neighborhood. Or here's how you change the political system. Here's how you, you know, influence for Christianity's sake, you know, interact with the world. Now, all of them have got truth in all of that stuff. But the problem is that we try and look at them in isolation. And probably some of you have your own biases as to which ones that you like. But what we need to realize is that because we live in the world, as I said, we're influenced by the formation and environment in which we live, the context. So culture has a profound influence on us. And because our culture is in a toxic moment of decay, that has an inevitable pressure, particularly on the Australian church and the church in Melbourne and across the Western world. And because of that decay, what it's meant is that the churches and movements across Australia are in significant decline. There's a couple bucking the trend, but the vast majority are in numerical, leadership, spiritual health decline. Numbers are down. Churches are shutting up. Uh, when there was a, a period when we were looking for a church building, and Sarah and I went and visited a church uh, not far from here, and we went in and said, can we use your church building? And they're like, well, actually, we sort of changed it up. We're like, that's interesting. What are you doing? They said, well, we don't have any congregation anymore. So we're just running a mother's, you know, like group and there's an English language class and there's this. And I'm like, okay, so that's interesting. I wonder, that's good. They're engaged with the community. They're doing some social justice stuff. Great. But there's no Christians worshipping in that place. They're gone. They're just running it off rent and property. That, that, that is the future. But there's a whole bunch which are going to get shut down. Our denomination here for Red at Churches of Christ... Um, are going to be shutting a bunch of churches down. Similar with Anglicanism, Uniting Church. Catholics are facing this. Across the board, there are churches in decline, and that is true across the Western world. And what that does is it creates a kind of malaise. Malaise, coming from the French, which is this sense of like, it's too hard. There's no hope. There's stuckness. And again, that's what I said, Satan wants us to be in malaise. He doesn't want us to move. And so that affects churches and, and it affects micro-communities where our small groups are like, oh, let's just meet. Let's try and get some community out of this. Where are we going? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe we can have a good little study about this and have some community. And leaders leading movements in decline find themselves overtaken when they look at the stats and they've tried things. And we're getting to the point now where people have tried. They've tried the mega thing. They've tried the missional thing. They've tried all kinds of different renewals. And yet the secularist juggernaut seems to continue on. And so we're overcome by this sense of malaise. And ultimately what that means is if your leaders are in malaise, if your small groups and communities that you find yourself are in malaise and actually atomizing under the cultural pressure if your church is in decline, if your movement or denomination is decline, if the culture is in decline, what does that mean for you? You become lost. 
you're doing church, and you're doing church because maybe you're one of the last stubborn ones left. And you're doing church, and you love Jesus, but you're just hanging on. And you're doing church, but the joy's gone. And in Melbourne, and I named it earlier, and I just want to name it again in case you missed it, overwhelmingly, and I'm going to guess most of us are in this stream, if you want to call the evangelical or charismatic church, there's the Pentecostals, which has a different culture, then you've got the mainline, like the super liturgical guys, but probably in our stream, if you're sort of Baptisty, Church of Christy, Vineyardy, E. <laughs> we don't realise it, and you don't realise it until you get out of Melbourne, that there's just this spirit of defeat. There's a spirit of malaise. And what that means is your people have that. And they look to leaders, they look to churches that with that vision that people perish. So we have a whole generation who are there, but they're lost. And what's also more powerful is you have this incredible, powerful Western culture. So not only is this lostness coming where the source of life needs to be the church, both local and global, but also the culture then just keeps coming in in insidious ways. And we try and have a small group every two weeks, which increasingly at churches are becoming untenable because coming once every two weeks is too much commitment for a lot of people. Or you try and hit it with a 40-minute sermon and some ministry time and some prayer when, as I said earlier, all that stuff, you're being shaped every day by thousands of targeted messages sent to you by the smartest brains on earth. And so what this means is if the church then is not being an agent in the world, this is where the vicious circle continues and that's no hope for the culture. The Christian base of Melbourne of why Melbourne just lost, Melbourne just lost the title of world's most liberal city to Vienna. Wunderbar Vienna. <laughs> and, you know, there's a whole argument about how real those things are, but we love it in Melbourne when we're number one and we tell everyone about it, don't we? Um, biggest, who cares? It's quality over quantity. Um, but some of the livable things about Melbourne, the parks the institution, the education for people, the coffee shops. People don't realise that so much of this is Christian roots. Methodism. Italians brought the espresso machine um, in the 50s. But Melbourne's coffee culture goes back before, and well done. Coffee shops go back before then to Methodism, which wanted to create spaces because Melbourne was overrun as a place built on gambling and gold mines with rampant substance abuse in the form of spirits. So they wanted to create these alternate places where people come and have coffee. And women, a primary was driven by women because of the unbelievable rates of domestic violence. So the church said, what's the solution? Let's actually then build these coffee shops, this alternate place where people can gather without fights and people are being beaten. The parks in our city, some of the institutions can go back to a man called Latrobe, Governor Latrobe who actually was from a family of Moravian Christians who 200 years earlier had been part of an incredible falling of the Holy Spirit in the countryside of Germany. But when that's not happening, when that Christian touch is not happening on culture, when Christianity is not being represented in fields of industry, education, in the social sphere, in politics... That's 
what happens is the culture declines even more. So it becomes a vicious cycle. And this is where we interact then between the micro and the macro. Terry's going to push into this more. And this is going to be really a big part of what he's going to talk about this afternoon. But I just want to just touch on it and just show you how this works at a macro sphere. When an individual goes through this, something begins to happen. And the mistake that everyone thinks is, okay, let's just create this big thing and let's create this education program to stop the culture. It's too hard. It doesn't begin here. It doesn't begin here. It doesn't begin here. It doesn't begin here. Where does it begin? It begins here with the revival in miniature, with personal renewal. When someone who seems like they have no power, they don't have a program to influence the entire culture, they can't control an entire denomination or a movement. They can't control a church. They can't control even the people in their small group. They can't control their leaders who seem to be Malays. But what they can do is take a personal responsibility and say, I can't tolerate this anymore. But it's actually going to begin with me. I was actually going to quote Michael Jackson there and say, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. But that's just not a good example. <laughs> So, when someone individually goes through this schema and begins to go on this track, it creates this little seed of life. And all you need is one space for the Holy Spirit to dwell, one space for the presence to be, one little crack in the curtain for the sunlight to come through. And all of a sudden, that one beam of light, you turn on a match in a vast, dark auditorium, and you'll see light. One tiny ray of light beats an entire voluminous cavern of darkness. And what happens there is you see that individual, and some people then find themselves with an individual renewal. Hang on, what's actually happening is now, actually, I'm not in conflict with myself as much. That spirit is working in me. That schema where the flesh is dying and the presence is growing is happening in me. And you know what happened? You don't even tell anyone about that. If you go through this, I can't tolerate this anymore. I'm actually going to repent, God. You get down on your knees in the quiet of your bedroom. You go to a few key people and say, hey, listen, I, I, I've been an idiot. I'm so sorry for being your friend and putting that on you. God's really brought that to light. I just want to apologize for that. When friends apologize to friends, when spouses apologize to spouses, when, when families repent, when in a small group someone says, I've been leading you guys, and you know, I've been leading you guys just from my own smarts, and I, I, I want to apologize. And then something begins to happen where you're set apart. I'm not going to be set by the standards of the world. I want us to be set by you. When all of a sudden humility starts to replace hubris, when all of a sudden this contending spirit and persistent prayer, even if it's just one person, even if it's a 10 minutes a day, and that breaking up of the soil, people notice it. Because what's happening is the spirit starts to be seen. And people's spirits, even if they're caught up in sin and flesh, sense what's happening in your spirit. They see the presence in you. The culture is a place without presence and thus has no weight. So therefore, when this presence comes, people can sense it. And you know what? They want it. When you stand there, like, what is different about that person? They're not pushing themselves forward. There's something, there's a quiet determination in that person. There's a holiness, there's a peace, there's a joy. They don't have to prove themselves. And actually, they did face that challenge, and maybe they face that insecurity, but they actually have conquered it. 
and they're moving into victory. And they're not perfect, but they're stepping forward and they're going forward with courage. That's infectious. That's sticky. People catch that. And those people often find themselves becoming leaders. Remember, a leader is not someone with positional power. It's someone with has influence over other people. And you sense it in people. And sometimes these people are almost silent, but the presence is roaring within them. And other people want to get on board. And you look at leaders. I, I mentioned Charles Simeon. When Charles Simeon first went into ministry in his early 20s, everyone just thought, like, oh, my goodness, this guy's a nightmare. He's full of himself. He dressed like a dandy, which was like the hipster of the 18th century. And you know what? He slowly died to his own flesh. He slowly let the presence grow in him. It happened slowly over the decades as he went through this, again and again. By the end of his life, every Friday night, he would eat dinner with 30, 40 pastors who just wanted to be around him. They just wanted to ask him questions and pray together. Every Friday night, they would have dinner at his house. Some of those pastors, you know where they ended up? Melbourne. They end up in Africa, Europe, America, the Caribbean. That one man's personal journey from a 21-year-old full of himself trying to be an 18th century hipster, and he went on this journey and it actually brought he was one of the key pegs that God used to revive the 18th century in Britain and re-spread the gospel around the world through using the, the roads of empire that the British created, which brought so much injustice and suffering, the Holy Spirit then used to send the gospel throughout the world. And what you find then is exactly what happened. Simeon starts, when he got locked out of his church, what does he do? He goes and starts small groups with the people in his church who were hungry. Families who came to him said, you know, most of the church was against him. Some of his sermons, he's literally doing sermons and people in the back rows are throwing rocks at the stained glass windows behind him. Okay, you thought yawns were bad. Um, and, and, and literally he's locked out of his own church. So he goes to who are the hungry? Who are the hungry in this church? A handful of families. And he goes to the houses. Let's open scripture again. Let's pray. Let's, let's contend. He then gathers that group of pastors who are throughout England. Hey, you, you know, you're the only guy in your entire parish who actually pretty much really believes in God and has a hunger for him. Come, come to my house for dinner. Let's just talk. Let's, let's make something happen. And so life begins to flow into these micro-communities. The German pietists had this saying, be the little church in the church. If you're in a church and you want to change your church, don't stand up on a Sunday or in a members meeting and tell everyone why they're wrong. Get together with a group of people who are hungry and just start doing it. Just start praying. Don't judge people. Don't just live out a different alternative. Create a micro... If you're, if you're a leader, find the small group of people who are hungry and just get them together and pray and watch what the Spirit will do. And so this then flows into churches and churches change where a hunger happens. All you've got to do is get... If you can imagine people as a worm, it's always helpful... Um, that a worm inches its way forwards by moving this part, which then moves that part and moves that part. In any human community, you've got 30% who will be hungry and want this. You've got 30% who are just bystanders, who will go with where the, the spirit is going. And you've got 30% who will be resistant. Church ministry so focuses on these people because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. 
And these people may love that sermon or love that small group or love that, but these are the ones who send the email. And, you know, often it's actually, then there's like the 2% here. They're the ones who write the Facebook comments that you wish you could delete. Um, and, but it's actually here. This is where. All you've got to do is move those people forward and these people naturally move forward. And, you know, some people might go, oh, okay, I'm out. I'm going to go over here and write Facebook comments on someone else's church Facebook page. And so when that begins to happen and it's infectious, it begins to grow, the cracks of light come into the dark room. And when that happens in a few micro-communities, there's one, then there's two, and then it begins in a church, and then that church is going, and then they meet people at some conference, maybe like today, and you go, hang on, what? You guys are feeling a sense to repent? What, you got called to that as well? That's weird. What, you've started praying and contending? We're doing that too. And then you start to hear those stories, and relationally the Holy Spirit is quickening things, and what you notice is that then movements are happening. And it's not movements because like, hey, we need to create a movemental dynamic, and let's do this. It's actually because the Holy Spirit's doing it. And you're not trying to create something through human striving. And when you've got a movement, watch out, because that movement's going to come into the culture. And it's going to cultures. You know, it's really key. It's not going to take over the whole culture. We never can actually take over the culture because there's actually people going to say no to what Jesus wants to do. Satan was at, Satan's hanging around heaven. He's like got all access pass to the throne room and he still chooses to rebel. He still chooses in Milton's words to, you know, he's, in Milton's Paradise Lost, he says, you know, when he's talking about his fall, he says, you know, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. So there's going to be people who choose that. So we're never going to take over the whole culture, but we can be a healthy, healing, dynamic and movement within the culture and cultures. So this is what a macro scheme of renewal looks like. This is what happens. And I just want to give you a quote by J.K. Beale. And, and this is linked to presence. If you can imagine, this is like presence then pushes from the culture. And just want to just separate these terms for you. I'll come back to that quote in a second. That renewal, I think you can sort of begin the elements of renewal. A revival is when like the Holy Spirit goes, right, okay, I'm going to move now. And we're going to kick this sucker off. And you can't control it. But this happens. And that's when it spreads from movemental and intercultures. And then things are really happening. Now, we can't make this happen. But we can get ourselves in a posture to make these things happen. We can't make it happen. The Spirit has to work. But we have to follow this path. G.K. Bill says this. We as the church will not bear fruit and grow and extend across the earth in the way God intends unless we stay out of the shadows of the world and remain in the light of God's presence. The mark of the true church is an expanding witness to the presence of God, first to our families, then to others in the church, then to our city, then the country, and ultimately the whole earth. History is going to the whole world being filled with his presence. It's just whether we are aligned with that reality. This is the surest map to reality there is. The secularist myth is just a faulty, rubbish myth that is making us unhappy. God is not going to let the world go to the trash heap. He is bringing about his purposes of renewal. The question is not, is he going to do that? He's going to do that. And I believe what's happening in the West, I think one of the reasons God's using globalization at the moment is that, like, I think we were called to do missions into the world and we didn't fully follow that. And he's actually now bringing people to us and he's messing up the world and he's putting people groups all over the place. And when I travel around the world, I'm amazed that you go to somewhere and you're some country and you meet someone like, hang on, you're from Burundi, what are you doing here? 
And they're like, yeah, I moved here. And maybe I was a refugee and, and my family discovered Jesus. And the amount of contending people I discover around the world who are migrants in other cultures is incredible. So he's going to do it. And if we, the sort of churches, I said, that Baptisty, Church of Christy, Vineyardy thing, you know, it's, it's going to be done by you know, denominations we've never heard of that are going to come from other parts of the world. So he's going to do it. It's actually the question of whether we're going to align and get on board with what he wants to do. And we're the ones who will pay the price if we don't. Because we will live dissatisfied half-lives of lostness. So what this is, is his presence moving forward. As this process here actually happens individually, it happens in all of these groups. It happens first for me when God really turned my life around a few years ago. When I got to this point, I can't tolerate this anymore. I was stuck. I was doing good things. I was writing books, leading a church that was growing, and, but, you know, I was, doing, I was comparing myself to other people. Not in the sense of like, oh, I'm like them. I was like, I'm actually doing okay compared to other people. When I compare myself to other leaders, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not filming myself every moment and trying to make it happen in my own strength. And then God said, stop looking at other people. Look what I did in Scripture. Look what I did throughout history. I want to renew you. First, he renewed me as an individual. Then he renewed me as a leader. And he may be also saying to you, he wants to renew your... You might be part of a small group, you might be part of a group of friends. He wants to do this, not just individually or in your leadership. He wants to do this in your small group, whatever your micro-community, mid-sized group, triad, whatever you're in, connect group, cell group, all these different names we have for a handful of people getting together and contending and then eating biscuits. <laughs> he wants to do this in your church. He wants to do this in your movement. And all of these, we have to go through this process But what all of this is, is breaking up the soil, emptying the temple for the Spirit to flow through this. The Spirit just wants to flow through all of this. So, turn to the person next to you. What's one key thing that you've picked up from this macro and micro schema that actually the Holy Spirit's nudging you right now? We prayed about today. We prayed that the Holy Spirit would nudge you. What's one thing you need to action and itemize that you need to do. And as I said, it could be like, man, I need to just work out whether I tolerate this. It could be, man, my small group needs to do this. I need to pray for this to happen in my church. I would love to see my movement changed. I'm actually going to walk the streets at lunchtime of my local area or downtown Melbourne, and I'm just going to pray, God, Spirit, move again. What is God asking you to do right now? Talk to the person next to you about that and ask them, what's the one thing that you're going to do? We integrate knowledge when we tell someone that we're going to do something about it. What's the one thing you feel you're called to do? Turn to the person next to you and have that chat. Okay. I just want to say one thing before we end um, for lunch. A couple of weeks ago, um, someone came to me, uh, Xanthi, who goes to our church, and said, after a service, said, Mark, wh- what are you saying here? Are you saying that as a prophet, <laughs> okay, um, as a prophet, are you saying that renewal is coming? Or are you saying 
that we need to posture ourselves into this. So is this a word of God, that renewal will come? Or are you to posture yourself into this? Fantastic question. I'm like, gold star, member of church for the week. <laughs> um, and what, I, what I'm saying is this. I'm not saying that definitely, from, like, this is a word of God, renewal will happen. What I am saying, and there's this moment, I want to tell a story to sort of answer that. There's a moment in the movie 13 Days, which is a story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis really quickly was in the 1960s when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba just off the American mainland, not far, so they could hit America. This had never happened before and the world went into crisis. And for a few days it looked like nuclear war would happen. And the US president at the time was John F. Kennedy, and there's this scene, the movie's about that, that whole few days, 13 days, where the world looked like we'd go to nuclear war. And there's this scene where John F. Kennedy's sitting there and before him he has his advisors. He has the civilians and the civilians are saying, we've got to go, demo- you know, we've got to go the road of diplomacy, let's just go down the road of diplomacy, let's just avoid war. And he's thinking, well, what do I do though? Like if I, if I say yes to this, when, where do they put missiles next? And then he's got the hawks, the doves and the hawks, the hawks are the military guys, and they're like, right, we're going to do a tactical nuclear strike on these things, and we just need to take them out now. You've got to strike. And just the tension, like, don't strike, strike, don't strike, strike. And he goes with his brother, Robert Kennedy. Two brothers, young, like they were young. And they go into another room. And John F. Kennedy says to his brother, like, what do we do? Who do we look to? And John F. Kennedy says, who, where are the old men who could tell us what to do, the old wise men? And Robert says, there aren't any. Because the situation that they faced, everything about diplomacy and statecraft was not based on the fact that you could now press a button and destroy the world. So how do you, this is not like a land war. This was a totally new situation. And John F. Kennedy says, I think we're now the old men. So there's this one truth that at this moment, what we're facing in secularism and the challenge of it is unprecedented. The technological shaping of you, your lives, your desires, your wants, your times, how you arrange your day from the minute you get up to go to bed is now set by a group of people in Silicon Valley. A corporation has more control over you than Stalin or Hitler or anyone could ever have dreamed of had in a totalitarian regime. This is unprecedented. The chaos in the world at the moment is unprecedented. And if you're waiting around for the A-team of the church to come out and go, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. I've spoken to some members of the A-team and they don't know what to do. Now that line, there are no old men. So in one, you are the, you are the people at this moment, created at this time called by God. He could have put you in the 16th century. You could have been born in 700s in Fiji. You weren't. You're born now. And you're born for a purpose for this time, to be play that thing of God moving through history from Eden to filling the whole of creation with his presence. And so you are the old men and old women at this time. I know you may not be old, but you know what I mean. The second part is there are old men and old women to look to. There are people who have done this before. 
And every single time I looked at renewal from the early church, someone like Augustine, all the way up to figures like Billy Graham or John Stott, leaders I know who are, who are closest aligned to this, you see them go on this process again and again. The time's different, the people are different, the men and women are different. They all go through this process. This doesn't change. There is a pattern to follow. And so, the other thing is, Robert Kennedy and John F. Kennedy faced that moment alone. You don't have to face this moment alone. The presence is saying, I'm here. The Holy Spirit's here. He's actually been here the whole time. He doesn't go away. He's there, following you around. I'm here. I want to spend time with you. I want to answer these things. I want to speak to you. I want to guide you. I want to show you what to no longer tolerate. I want to show you and lead you in repentance. I want to show you what to confess. I want to bring you apart. And it's not going to be isolation. It's actually going to be you coming apart with me and you're going to be more connected to me than anything in the world could ever give you. I want to lead you into humility just as Jesus showed us how to lead into humility. I want to show you what it is to contend. I want to help you pray. You can't do this in your own strength. The Spirit helps you pray. If you're like, I need the faith to have this happen. I've got doubts. I need the faith. You don't need your own faith. Like the faith is something given by the Spirit. And to break up the soul, whether it's in your life, wherever that is, in your movement, wherever you are, the Spirit is here and willing to do this. So I'm just going to pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are present. Thank you that you are calling people apart. Thank you that we were born at this time and this moment. Jesus, I recognize that this is challenging. I recognize, Father, that you ask us to leave stuff behind. I want to confess there's times where I didn't think you could do and move again. I want to confess that sometimes I've let my own thoughts get in the way. I want to say, Father, I've, I've put my own restrictions and obstacles in what you can do. I've let my own reservedness, shyness, even get in the way at times, Jesus. I've let my own hurts, and we all do. I say this for all of us standing in the gap, our own wills. The Holy Spirit, we know that you want to renew us again. I have a real sense, Father, that in this room, there's people who are at this moment, there's a hunger and discontent. That's why they're here on a Saturday morning when there's a bazillion things other to do in Melbourne. So, Father, move in us again. just want to pray, Father, you'll gently show people in this room where they need to begin on this micro pattern and on this macro pattern. And we want to say in faith that we think, we know that you are with us and you want to do something again. To answer the final part of Xanthi's question, I'm not saying it is a definite word from the Lord, but when I've studied renewals, it comes at a point of great cultural fear when anxiety is the dominant feeling, when globalization kicks off and cultures are thrown against each other, when politics goes mad, when people lose their way, when churches get small and no longer reach for human solutions but push into what the Spirit wants to do. When I've studied that process, we are approaching a time like that. So the question is not is he going to do this? The question is, are we ready and are we hungry?